0: The reason for um, uh, the urgent release of this particular chapter is that in my opinion it reveals a very concerning piece of information about why it is in part we've seen so few investigations and prosecutions of money laundering in BC despite there being a widely recognized problem, an international problem of large scale money laundering taking place especially in Metro Vancouver. This
1: is Vancouver Province Columnist Mike Smith. And I'm Vancouver Sun Columnist Rob Shaw. It's time to go in the house and go inside BC Politics. Alright, welcome to another podcast. I'm Mike Smith with Rob Shaw and that was the voice of the Attorney General David Eby. Talking about the latest on money laundering in British Columbia, another report out from uh, the government, at least a partial report, Rob. And this one, uh, some surprising numbers about the uh, amount of RCMP muscle looking into money laundering or maybe lack thereof, I guess.
2: Yeah, big fat zero. That yeah. was the magic number there. It was this <laughs> kind of this report where the attorney general brings out uh, Peter German, who's a former RCMP officer who's been doing a lot of these anti-money laundering reports. And he says, hey, guess what? I went to the RCMP, I asked him a series of questions, each more devious than the last, apparently, (laughs) like, how many officers are investigating money laundering? And and he he worked these numbers down. So it's like, there's a 25 person RCMP federal money laundering unit. Right. 25 funded positions. Okay. Only 11 of the positions are actually filled with human beings. And of those 11, only five are actually on the job doing investigative work. And of those five... They're all doing uh, civil forfeiture cases and not criminal money laundering cases. So the net result as the Attorney General, you heard him say off the top there, is zero. zero. zero officers investigating money laundering from the RCMP. And that's why it continues to be such this, this big problem that we don't appear to get, be getting a lot of convictions Court cases, especially federal prosecutions, are falling apart. Yeah. And we've heard David Eby be frustrated by that in the past. And he basically fired this warning shot uh, against Ottawa, which I think Smitty is designed because we know there's more money coming to money laundering, to fight money laundering from the federal budget that just came out. I think it's a shot to say, hey, look, feds you've got this 70 million over a certain number of years we want it all we want more we want all yeah, that all we, that want, all money. Of it. we yeah. want all of it and this is this is one reason why so it was a very interesting press conference
1: it's uh eb's been the expert on this file i think in laying out for the public this sort of very sinister picture of what's going on and to me i've always thought of it as kind of a jigsaw puzzle that he's put together for people because and the and the parts of the puzzle are you've got drug dealing you got fentanyl overdose deaths thousands of people dying from drug overdoses you've got an unaffordable housing market where people can't afford to buy a home in the city where they where they grew up and then you've got these the video surveillance that he released last year of these shady characters hauling in duffel bags of gangster rolls of twenty dollar bills held together with rubber bands to bc casinos in what he describes as, and he says other experts describe as, the Vancouver model of money laundering, and people start to put together this puzzle, and you start to see this picture of like, my God, this is this is unbelievable, this is outrageous, you know, it's it's like British Columbia has been turned into this gangster's paradise, and he has painted this picture, and then you come out, then the next shoe drops where he says, oh by the way, nobody's investigating it, and you and you you just sit back and in. in in stunned disbelief. Like, what do you what do you mean nobody's investigating it? Like this is crazy. It kind of reminds me of that. Um are you a Monty Python fan? Yeah. Do you remember the remember the Piranha brothers? Yeah. The yeah. criminal Piranha brothers? And I always remember the guy from Scotland Yard and Monty Python saying, We were tracking their every movement by reading the newspapers or all the newspapers <laughs> to find out what they're doing. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean I, I guess in some ways EB's trying to point a finger at the BC liberals. And saying why weren't they on top of this on the other hand this government's been in power for coming up to two years and now we're finding out yeah. that there's well, no RCMP officers investigating this
2: we asked okay. him that question let's let's hear what he had to say right. about this idea of like well what did you not ask or is any does anybody bothered to ask if there's any RCMP officers and here's what he had to say on that for
0: the last uh, two years I've been pushing saying there aren't enough federal resources Uh, Whether or not I knew actually that there were zero uh, federal officers dedicated to this file uh, I think is a bit beside the point. It's incredibly disturbing uh, that there were zero. I had pictured some at work, I guess it's a failure of my imagination, that I didn't imagine an empty office, I imagined an understaffed office. Uh, but in any event, it wouldn't have changed my message to the federal government when I went to the Finance Committee a year ago and I said, you're spending so much time enforcing compliance with the forms. Who's doing the investigations? Is the same message that I gave uh, yesterday at the press conference.
2: So, Smitty, a failure of his imagination that he couldn't imagine an empty office, uh, that there were none. I will only point out that there's a ton of meetings going on between the RCMP, the government, and the federal government. We just had the federal anti-criminal organizations minister, Bill Blair, out here, who presumably knows the staffing levels of these police departments. And the B.C. government just hired in March the E-Division commander of the RCMP. So the top Mountie in the RCMP, Brenda Butterworth Carr, is now the, the uh, director of police services for the government. So she comes in from leading the B.C. Mounties... Knows all of the staffing issues and where who's what where, and she's been in the job for a month now. And nobody, no, she didn't tell the government that yeah. there's no money laundering officers. Nobody asked. It's like this weird. It's so bizarre. Did they not ask the right question in the right way? And the, I, I, anyways, David Eby, as you heard from that clip, says that's beside the point. It's not about when we knew or didn't know. It's about what it is now. And I, I guess so, but it is beyond imagination that that the government doesn't know that this is going on
1: I think one of the things that most people when they hear about this it's just another kind of head shaker but uh, the other question people might ask well okay what are you doing about it like what how are you going to fix this how are you going to clean this up and what I find a little tough to take is the political finger pointing that goes on because E.B. is a master at kind of very subtly sliming the liberals with all this stuff like he, he is very effective in in. And presenting the case and and laying out evidence, but there's always kind of a political element to it that's a little opaque, but basically the the suggestion is, by the way, none of this stuff is our fault. It's all the liberals' fault. They were in power for 16 years. They were the ones who let these money launderers run wild. They were the ones who let the, the housing market get out of control. So they're pointing fingers, and we also saw some finger pointing at the federal level on this. This this week as well, because the federal liberal government and Justin Trudeau was, of course, asked about this report and they blamed it on the federal conservatives and it was uh, Stephen Money Harper. Yeah, it's like Stephen Harper made cuts to the RCMP and that's what the problem is.
2: Four years ago. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, the public, I think, gets a little tired of this. I think they want to know what's actually going to happen with it. One of the things that E.B. was asked about again this week for probably the 100th time is, what about a public inquiry? Right. Are you going to have a public inquiry into money laundering in B.C.? There was an interesting moment this week on uh, where E.B. made a Facebook post where he said, all this, uh, this these evidence and these reports are going to be presented to cabinet, and then the cabinet is going to make a decision about whether there will be a, a money laundering inquiry. And there was even some government MLAs this week posting on Twitter with the hashtag public inquiry now. Which uh, has been trending on on Twitter for people who want this public inquiry. I don't know. When you look at that, does that does that say to you a public inquiry is likely to happen now? Given that the government's kind of hyping the decision.
2: Well, they're under a lot of pressure from, you know, from some of their own allies. I think that they've been using the unions to float the trial balloon of a public inquiry. the The BCGEU, the Government no. Services Employees Union, has been out there with their surveys and their you know suggestions and their Uh, I think kind of as the kind of lead test water uh, case of like, is there the public appetite for this? But you have to go back to Premier John Horgan, who's consistently said the only people who benefit from a public inquiry are the lawyers. Tons of lawyers, millions in legal fees, years go by. We want to do things now. We don't want a public inquiry. But the fact that it's going to cabinet for a decision and you've got some MLAs. I know you were engaging Bowen Ma, uh, one of the right up and coming um, young New Democrat MLAs who's very active on social media.
1: She was one of the ones using this hashtag public inquiry yeah. now. Which and they tried I tried
2: to insist that that wasn't really uh, a position she was taking.
1: She's saying, I'm, that doesn't mean I want a public inquiry now, even though, <laughs> even though that's just she's tweeting. Uh, yeah. So, I, I don't know, like, in my experience, I've, it's, it's unusual if the government starts hyping a decision and saying like, oh, we're going to make a decision about whether there's a public inquiry. Stay tuned. Uh, if there seems to be polling data that suggests that most of the public want an inquiry like this. And then the government turns around and says, oh, actually, we've decided not to do it. So to me, you know, you're reading the tea leaves here. Maybe I started feeling like this this week that a public inquiry was more likely. Um, But I guess we'll find out. It's politically dangerous, dicey stuff, though, because technically a a provincial government cannot investigate the feds. Mm -hmm. Right. So, I mean, a lot of this has to do with federal jurisdiction of the RCMP. Fintrack, which is a federal agency responsible for money laundering. I mean, if you're going to do a real public inquiry about this, don't you have to call all those people on the carpet and put them on the witness stand and aggressively cross-examine them? You, you know, RCMP and Fintrack people, are they really going to do that?
2: You'd think so, but yeah. it's great politics in another way to keep this thing going with an inquiry and continue to gather ammunition. I think it'll be, it would be fascinating to be in the cabinet room to listen to this discussion because we know that the cabinet is kind of split between some of the more pragmatic, um, you know, moderate New Democrats who are trying to give the impression and constantly every day that this government is not as as activist and as was out there, um, as some people believe an NDP government is. And then you have the activist ministers who are just chomping at the bit to do the things they want to do in opposition and would love to go out there and um, execute bold agendas that they have for better or for worse, depending on how you feel about it. And there is that division in cabinet. And I think the public inquiry might split along those lines, too. Do you pragmatically want to waste this money and time? Or do you, you know, in an activist way, want to jam this down the the previous liberal government's throat and make this, you know, a huge issue? And, and I'm not sure, you know, cabinet will come out united, but it will be a fascinating and potentially divisive discussion in that cabinet. But like
1: room. you like you said, Horgan seems to be on the side of. No public inquiry, yeah. judging by his public comments. And there, you know, a guy like Horgan and some of the other people on his side of it may be arguing behind the scenes, look, we can accomplish our political goals here, i.e. blame the liberals for all this, without the expense and the apparent risk of and p- possible risk of a backfiring of the public inquiry. If we can just keep EB going out there, churning out these reports, pointing fingers at the liberals, by the way, it's all their fault then we can accomplish that without a public inquiry. But there does seem to be a big sort of public movement to get it done. So I don't know. This is going to be interesting here.
2: There's a lot of politics, as you said. And I think it's fascinating that this German report is done, but it's not being released. We only got this chapter selection of it for, I would argue, purely political reasons to pressure the federal government. The whole report isn't even out. So that's clearly a, it's a political move by David Eby. We call him, you know, the chief prosecutor, not just because he's the attorney general, because he's prosecuting the former liberal government's record all the time. That's part of what he's doing. And I thought it was really interesting. There was another report on money laundering quietly posted to the BC Lottery Corporation website. So in a subsection, so arcane within the website, you would never find it. There's no press release. There's no fanfare, there was no fireworks, there was no ministerial statement, and it was a three-year review of uh, money laundering at River Rock Casino and checks, and this idea that are there people going in with dirty money, um, playing a little bit of gambling, losing some money, cashing it out as a check, and laundering the money that way. And they discovered that that, uh, no, that's not a systemic problem. That according to them, uh, this outside review they did for three years, that uh, there was very few examples of that being a problem. Now, Hmm. There are other ways to launder money. David E. B. said, look, there's the Vancouver model, which is different. Um, and I think Peter German's old reports in the past pointed to the fact the last three years are probably not the peak of that kind of money laundering in casinos anymore anyways. But I do think it is fascinating how a report that doesn't fit into the current government's narrative of money laundering is buried so deep that you could never find it. Interesting. Which is kind of where the politics come from. but. Okay. Anyways, we, there was a lot of other going, uh, other stuff going on this week. A very interesting announcement by government on ticket scalping, yeah. Smitty. And we, I guess, have also been watching this issue percolate for the past year or more. Yeah. Government studying, consulting. What are they going to do about bots? What are they going to do about, you know, when you're trying to get out there and buy your lover boy tickets and suddenly <laughs> suddenly they're all sold out and you're on StubHub and you're mortgaging the house so you can get those front row tickets. Um uh, like, is that fair? And so some of the, the changes that government announced here, one is a legislation that would ban bots. And uh, that that's this mass purchasing software that some people can use to get on the old Ticketmaster and snatch up all those Loverboy tickets the moment they go on <laughs> sale and then resell them for profit on, on the market. The question that came up, and we're going to hear from Solicitor General Mike Farmer on this question that comes up is, so, what jurisdiction does BC have to go after bots in Russia or the Cayman Islands or all these, you yeah. know, inter- and is that practical? And here's what he had to say about that.
0: It's not going to be going about getting the individual in the Cayman Islands or in Russia. It's about uh, ticket sellers such as Ticketmaster, for example, who monitor and have, the, and have the ability to detect bots being able to cancel transactions.
2: So... The argument there is we're not going after the bots per se, we're going after Ticketmaster and companies who are selling tickets here and we're forbidding them from selling tickets that come from bots and we're going to fine the heck out of them if they do. And I guess that's really the only way the government can get into the jurisdictional issue of this. It can't go around the world tracing down bots, but it can say if you are a company selling tickets in this province and they come from a bot, you are forbidden to do so or we're going to fine you. Seems like a, a, a fairly you know easy way to go at the issue.
1: Good populist measure, for sure, because anyone who's gone on StubHub or any of these other secondary ticket markets uh, knows how much you got to pay through the nose to go see a, a popular show. And in my own experience, uh, yeah, Loverboy, sure, I'm a Loverboy fan, but <laughs> let's talk about the Rolling Stones for a minute, okay? Because right. uh, the Rolling Stones are playing, we're supposed to play in Seattle in May. And a few weeks ago, I went on, I thought, oh boy, I'd really like to see that show. So I went on to StubHub. Yep. And I mean, you got to pay through the nose to get a nosebleed seat to see the stones. And I was humming and hawing about it. And I almost pulled the trigger on it and bought these paid hundreds and hundreds of dollars for these tickets and then decided to think about it for a little while. And I'm glad I did because like almost like the next day, Mick Jagger announced they were canceling the tour because he was sick or he's got to, you know, he's got to get some health. He's got some health issues. Right. So. Anyway, that's just an aside. Here's the thing, I've bought secondary market tickets because I'm a lazy guy and I usually don't have my act together enough to be sitting in front of my computer at the precise moment these tickets go on sale with my credit card in my hand to make sure I get a ticket. So I'm usually thinking about it days later and like, oh, and now it's sold out. So I've paid extra for Paul McCartney, I've paid extra money for other shows. And and it's a drag, right, it sucks. You know, so it's interesting to see the government going after this. And I think the public, there's certainly a public appetite to do something about it. The question is, can they do something about it? In Ontario, the previous liberal government in Ontario brought in similar type of laws. And one of the things that they had in Ontario was you could not have more than a 50% markup on the face value of a ticket if you resell it. And one of the things that uh, Doug Ford did when he became the Premier of Ontario was he cancelled that part of it because he said, we can't enforce this. It's mm-hmm. just too complex. We can't do it. So, I mean, it sounds great, but can you actually enforce these type of laws?
2: That was the big missing component in this package. And it was something that a lot of people in government's consultation uh, last year wanted. They wanted a cap on the resale price. And Mike Farmer said, look, we Checked Ontario. We checked Manitoba, which actually does have a cap in place, and it basically isn't working at all. Not working there either. We checked the United Kingdom. It's not enforceable. We can't do it. We didn't want to put it into law and give this false hope that we could control that. So we're just not going to do it, which I'm sure disappoints some people. But there's a lot of logistical things in this bill, forcing a company like Ticketmaster, which has not only a primary ticket selling arm, but also a reselling arm in the same company, forcing those companies to say, you need to put the tickets out for sale at the face value first. You can't just take them and quietly slide them over to the resale arm and jack the prices up. So that kind of stuff behind the scenes, I think, will make a difference. Promoters, concert uh, venues that have hidden tickets, they can't just resell them without offering them first. There are some questions here about, well, what about this new practice of offering packages? So you're buying the ticket, but you're also getting an experience and a bunch of merchandise, and that's all inflating the price. Not quite sure where that lands, but you've heard that Maybe it's one way around this. So it it's the kind of thing I think that um, at first blush seems like a great idea. It seems like exactly what the public wants. Right. It seems like it does the best that the government can. But I bet you people will be crafting ways around this. Yeah. Thing.
1: I mean, if you can, if Mike Farnworth can knock off a couple hundred bucks in the price of my Rolling Stones tickets if they tour again, which they say they will, that'd be awesome. Go for <laughs> it, Mike. I love it. But I'll believe it when I see it. And also. I, I think it sounds almost too good to be true,
2: but we'll see. It also doesn't affect your and my ability. Let's say you buy those Lover Boy tickets. You can't go to the concert and you want to sell them on Craigslist? Legislation uh, does not limit you or I or ordinary people from doing that. You can buy okay. tickets. For as much as I want. I can sell, sell them, for them for as, as much as okay. you want. It's only the corporations that they go after. So it doesn't change right. if you find a couple random tickets the day of the concert for whatever you want to go to on Kijiji or Craigslist or whatever. You can still do that. It's just the corporations it really cracks down on. So All right. it's very interesting. Uh, Smitty, you had a great column uh, recently on the Maple Ridge modular housing homeless camp issue, which has been percolating here at the legislature for a while, uh, there's been protests in Maple Ridge. Uh, I mean, the, the essence of, of this story goes back many weeks now, but there was a tent city in Maple Ridge. Uh, there were disputing uh, conflicting views between the municipality and the provincial government on how to put housing in, where to put it, what type of housing. The government wants this 51-unit um, basically kind of modular housing thing to go in to house the people from the Anita Place homeless camp. Right. Maple Ridge wanted its own version of that. They wanted a better social housing plan, not this kind of low barrier housing, which residents feel is going to really draw crime and other drug issues to their neighborhoods. Yep. It's put the two local NDP Maple Ridge MLAs on the hot seat. I noticed there was a statement Put out in one of the local newspapers by um, Bob Deeth, yep. who's one of the one of the MLAs. I can only imagine the type of communications work that went into crafting a letter in a community where people are upset, but the government's jamming through a project is like splitting the atom. The type of <laughs> the type of communications work that would have been required to put that statement together. But nonetheless, the MLAs are getting drawn into it. The premier's in on it. Yeah. Let's you asked the premier a really interesting question about why he won't meet. With the mayor of Maple Ridge, let's see what he had to say about that, Smitty, and then right. you can you can jump in there.
1: And could you comment on the modular housing project in Maple Ridge, and specifically the comments by the mayor there, Mike morden that he'd asked you for a meeting about this, and he didn't get a meeting? To meet with you.
3: Well, because I have a very capable minister responsible for municipal affairs and housing, uh, who had been speaking with the mayor right up until the decision was made by them to reject. Uh, the proposal that we put forward and continue to promote one that wasn't physically possible. He was advised by the Minister, his staff were advised by uh, BC Housing staff that it was not physically possible to do what they were proposing. They decided to go forward with it anyway. Uh, I'm confident that uh, Selena Robinson, Lisa Barr, and Bob Deeth, uh, two very uh, enthusiastic and, and committed uh, activists in their community can manage uh, the issues on behalf of the government. I don't believe I need to step in. Mr. Morden has not demonstrated any desire to work with the province, so me being there is not going to change that.
1: Well, here's the reason why I think this one is particularly interesting and why I'm watching it closely is because there's lots of homeless camps around. There are lots of controversial uh, housing projects in every municipality. What makes this one, I think, interesting and very significant and important is because it's in such a crucial political battleground there in Maple Ridge. I mean, the NDP hold the two seats there. So the MLAs there are Lisa Baer. She represents Maple Ridge Pit Meadows, the tourism minister. And as you mentioned, Bob Deeth, who is Maple Ridge Mission. These are both very, very closely contested seats. And in the last election, the Liberals have held both these seats in the past, the NDP took both of these seats. They th- those two NDP MLAs defeated liberal incumbents in the last election. Now, one of the reasons why they the NDP won was I think the the ND, uh John Horgan's promise to scrap bridge tolls played really well in Maple Ridge and I think it really helped these candidates to win there. But now you just know that the Liberals are looking very closely at those two seats and they want them back. And the election arguably can be won or lost in in ridings like this, a handful of very close ridings. So now you got this housing project uh, with the government insisting they want to build this project over the opposition of a lot of the community. The liberals got to love this. They're sitting back and thinking, how can we use this to our advantage to get these seats back? And I was a little surprised to hear Horgan Go as tough as he did there against the mayor. The mayor there, Maple Ridge, is a guy named Mike Morden. He won pretty pretty handily in the last municipal election, and he is all over this housing project and leading the leading the fight against it. And he's Horgan's picked there. You know, Horgan's. I think I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure if this is the wisest fight to pick here in Maple Ridge. There is some very high politics uh, political stakes there.
2: Yeah, it's certainly a government uh, saying to the local community. This is what needs to be done. This is what we're going to do. And that's it. We, we have not been able to broker any type of discussion with the mayor. Uh, you heard the premier say in that clip that what's the point of meeting with him? The guy's demonstrated yeah, doesn't, he, he, wouldn't even meet with him. he doesn't want to work with us. So yeah. I don't need to meet with him. You know, the modular housing homelessness issue has been a cornerstone of the NDP social housing platform since their very first budget. And it was I remember asking Housing Minister Selena Robinson right after the budget well, what happens if a community doesn't want these modular units to house the homeless? And it was, the answer was no, 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 no. We'll work with them. We'll come up with the best solution. We'll consult. Well, you know, this is not us imposing, um, you know, homeless modular housing units on communities where people don't want it. But the reality is that's exactly what it is. And we saw it in Nanaimo play out in a very similar fashion where we had the NDP uh MLA Leonard Crow running for city council or for city mayor having to disavow his own party yeah. uh and criticize his own party for the way they were handling the homelessness housing issue in Nanaimo. Yeah. It puts the local MLAs in very awkward positions because they know their constituents are upset, mm-hmm. but they can't go against the Premier and the Housing Minister. Right. And it is maybe the practical on the ground reality of what is you know a genuine attempt by the NDP government to house homeless people through these temporary, quick-to-assemble, modular housing developments. They're not permanent, you know, 40-year social housing projects. They're just very quick responses to what the Liberal government found themselves in, this problem with tent cities that appear, court decisions that prevent governments from dismantling them without appropriate housing elsewhere, and the government has to decide, well, where can we do this housing? How quickly can we build it? And this is the NDP's response, but it's... Proving a very a very big headache for them on the ground. I think
1: Horgan's got a pretty decent argument where he says, "Well, what do you want? What do you want? Do you want this modular housing project where people can live with some sort of decency, or do you want a a homeless camp, in tent city?"
3: Yeah.
1: The problem is that the particular modular housing project they've decided on and they're being built on provincial land without any of the municipal input, so the, the municipality can't really stop it. If they don't. If they, you know, if they try, is that. There's been a mobilization of the neighborhood against it. And you've got the mayor and who's got a very firm majority on that city council there in Maple Ridge going up against it. And I think the mayor has got the, you know, this the the bit between his teeth here saying this is a good issue for me and I I got no problem fighting Horgan on it. So I'm wondering if if the province might back down on this. If they might say, well, OK, we'll put it, we'll build it somewhere else. It'll, it's, this is an interesting test of will here by Horrigan and his government if they're going to go ahead with his project, given the political stakes here. I mean, you could argue that if the NDP lose those two seats, they lose the whole government potentially in the yeah. next election. Things are things are that close. Another one to watch is North Vancouver. You mentioned uh, Bowen Moth yeah, uh, recently or just a short time ago. The liberals want that seat back, too, because that's another one the NDP took from them. Mm-hmm. And there are some local issues. There's some local controversies there, including some, uh, including some social housing projects. And the liberals were just in there the other day, flooded a bunch of volunteers in there to knock on doors. So, yeah. I mean, the election could be years away, but they're already campaigning there. This is where the elections won and lost, these very, very close ridings.
2: There's a larger issue. You know, our colleague Von Palmer asked the premier at the same press conference. You asked him that question. What are you doing about municipalities that aren't buying into what you're selling? And we are seeing some municipalities like Vancouver resist the idea of density along the Broadway, you know, subway line project, which the government has said needs to happen. You are seeing communities like Surrey, um, you know, backlash against the approved light rapid transit projects and demand SkyTrain and the government's resisting that. And you get to a point where you examine – You know, the Liberals were at war with the municipalities when they were in government. And they had just decided, at a certain point, you do what you think is right, and you force the municipalities to come along. And on some examples, like, for example, the Canada line, which was a very clear directive from the provincial government over top of the mayoral objections, history proves you right. And they say, you know what? That was great leadership from the province. In other examples, you fall flat in your face and you lose ridings in an election. And you do start to get – you start to realize that – the municipalities aren't giving John Horgan and the NDP government any more breaks, really, than they gave the Liberals. And there are going to be these tensions that erupt in communities on transit, on density, on homelessness, on housing. And at some point, the NDP will have to do what the Liberals did and say, this is our plan, this is our vision, this is our platform, this is what we got elected upon. We are doing this, and we're going to force you to do it. And the Liberals will, in a perverse way, criticize the NDP for forcing municipalities yeah. to do something they don't want to do. And we're stuck in, as you often put it, that deja vu yeah. kind of time it's loop. It's the Groundhog where, Day thing. Yeah. It like, just... oh if you force a municipality to do something against their will, it means you don't know what you're doing. Well, yeah. sometimes you just can't, the province and municipalities can't play together and it doesn't work.
1: The NDP's had a pretty easy ride with the municipal stuff here for the first couple of years of the mandate. And you know, I think a lot of municipal mayors and councillors, a lot of them are new because we just had a recent municipal election. We're saying like, oh, this is a breath of fresh air dealing with this new this new government. This is awesome. Well, you know, after a while, you the frictions inevitably start. The elbows start coming up and you start to get some uh, some tougher relations going on. But some of them are very high stakes. Pay close attention to that Maple Ridge fight. I'm telling you, that's an yeah. important one.
2: Another deja vu moment is the discussion here at the legislature, Smitty, on. The gas, the the price of gasoline and the carbon tax. And we've gone through a number of question periods now where the liberals are attacking the new Democrat government on the high price of gas in Metro Vancouver. You know, we're up to what? What are we up to now? 160, more than 160 a liter yep. in Victoria. It's 156 a, a liter. Um And this, <laughs> it's this weird argument, and I'm not sure what you make of it, where The NDP's criticize, the liberals are criticizing the NDP for the price of gas. They're saying the government could offer relief. They're criticizing the government raising the carbon tax, which increases the price of gasoline. And they're saying that John Horgan needs to give motorists a break at the pump. Despite right. the facts, the car- the carbon tax came from the liberals. It's their yeah. creation. They raised the bejesus out of it since yeah. it was created. Yeah. Um, they, in fact, at the end of their tenure, promised to raise it more in their last gasp to keep power. Now they're criticizing the NDP for the carbon tax at the pump. I don't know. What do you make of that? Well, Zoe? this is
1: where that Groundhog Day thing comes in, because you do see these repeating sort of time loop kind of deja vu stuff going on. But quite often, it's just sometimes the 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 names have been changed or the policies or the parties have been flip-flopped. So this is a classic example because, like you said, the Liberals were the ones who brought in the carbon tax. And guess who fought the carbon tax when it was introduced? The NDP, right? Remember when Carol James was the leader of the NDP? What was the slogan? Axe the tax. Axe the tax, right? And I remember many times interviewing Carol James, as you did as well, uh, going on about how terrible this carbon tax is and how unfair it is and how much it's going to punish drivers. And they fought it and didn't work for them. Now it's Carol James as the finance minister. She's the one who's increasing the carbon tax saying, isn't this great? And it's the liberals who are telling them to back off. So it's completely flip flop. But, you know, it's it's raw on the ground politics. People, nobody likes paying a lot of money for for gas. So everybody wants to play the blame game on it. Horgan's strategy on it as well. Yeah, we put up the carbon tax by another penny a liter, but that doesn't explain why the price of gas is going so high when the price of a barrel of oil has remained pretty stable. So he's pointing the finger at big oil and saying it's the gas companies, it's the big oil companies. They're the ones who are to blame. They're gouging you. Mm -hmm. And I asked Horgan the other day, do you have any proof of that? You know, that they're gouging, there's collusion going on. And he did a Donald Trump thing. No collusion um, that he's aware of, but he will continue to go out there and suggest that this is what's going on, even though there's no proof that there's collusion going on among the oil companies. Sometimes it certainly looks that way.
2: It's hard to explain otherwise. Oh well, yeah, you know? yeah. But the question now is, does the government provide relief yeah. on gas? So That's if it. you look at the gas price in Metro Vancouver, there's almost 35 cents uh, on on a liter of oil that is due to extra kind of taxes in some yeah. way or another. And you can get up higher depending on how you want to, um, you know, talk about the different taxes. So you can even get as high as 50 Uh, Cents a liter is various taxes, federal GST, that kind of thing. Question is, does the province provide relief, take a less of a tax cut, lower the price of gas by, you know, 5, 10, 15 cents a liter? I mean, at the end of the day, that costs us as taxpayers money through revenue will probably result in oil companies just jacking the price of gas back up to make up the difference. And they take that money anyways. Do you see the premier doing
1: that? Isn't it all kind of hypocritical, too, because the the whole purpose of a carbon tax is to inflict pain on you at the pump. That's the point of it, that when you go to gas up your car, it hurts. And you say to yourself, oh, man, this is killing me paying a buck 60 a liter. Screw this. I'm going to go in an electric car. I'm going to take the bus to work or I'm going to ride my bike. That's the point of the carbon tax. It's supposed to hurt. It's supposed to get you to change your behavior. But then you got these politicians saying, well, if it hurts too much, maybe we'll pull back a little bit, you know? (laughs) So they both talk out of both sides of their mouths. But... You know, Horgan kind of flip-flop on this this week, didn't he? Like at first he said like, oh, you know, maybe we'll offer relief. And then a couple of days later he said, well, we're not going to offer you tax relief. Well, what kind of relief are you, is he
2: talking about? Sympathetic ear maybe. I, I mean, and then then imagine that we also have got legislation recently and, and just as we're, we're recording this podcast that will mandate um, all electric vehicle purchases in the province by 2040, which was part of the Clean BC plan. So you're right. The carbon tax is supposed to penalize you, yeah. make you hurt, force you buy an electric vehicle. In fact, you're gonna to have to buy one eventually to meet the the government's climate right. plan. But we don't want to hurt you too much, because no, then you might much, be then they might much. be mad at yeah, us, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's a very yeah. weird dance that we yeah. see on that, and it's not helped by the fact that liberals are criticizing a tax they created for <laughs> a small increase from the NDP. But it's 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 one of those things. Uh, quickly before we go, Smith, let's talk a bit about. Um, the ongoing, you know, scandal at the legislature. And, uh, it's interesting that we had another meeting. The all party committee of MLAs got together, talked a bit, and we heard from the acting clerk, Kate Ryan Lloyd. We'll play a clip here on one of the many reviews that are now in the air. Uh, this is her talking about the need for an independent review. On the workplace issues at the legislature. So in the wake of the speakers and the uh, sorry, the sergeant at arms and the clerk suspension over spending allegations, the wood splitter, the wood splitter. Yeah. There's been a lot of suggestions here that people were fired improperly or treated poorly under their tenure at the legislature. And so there needs to be a workplace review of how people were treated. Here's what she had to say about that.
3: Thank you, uh, Mr. Speaker. As members will recall, at the um, meeting on March 6th, um, this committee requested that I undertake some initial steps uh, with respect to the establishment of a workplace review and an organizational reconciliation process um, here at the Legislative Assembly. Uh, Pursuant to that direction, uh, since the committee last met, I did have an opportunity to meet Uh, with the Deputy Minister of Health, the Deputy Minister responsible for the Public Service Agency and the Ombudsperson. And I'd like to thank them for their time and their initial assistance with um, our our, uh, planning um, with respect to these processes. Uh, A key takeaway from those meetings is that we will need to have an independent party uh, conduct an arm's length assessment of this organization as an employer. As such, a request for information has now been posted as an initial first step. The purpose of this request for information is simply for us um, at the assembly to get a better understanding of the various tools that are available in the marketplace to help an organization such as ours approach um, this, uh, this matter uh, in in a manner that is credible um, and has um, and and can um, be trusted by staff, both former and current staff, uh, and achieve the objectives uh, that this committee um, has established for that process. So how
1: many reviews are going on here now? There's a lot of them.
2: <laughs> There's a lot. It's hard to keep track of them. So yeah. that's that's the acting clerk, Kate Ryan Lloyd, saying we need an independent review for work safe issues, and she's citing the people, the deputy minister of health, the Ombuds person the head of the public service agency, those are the people who clean up the mess or were part of the mess uh, on the health firings issue, the, the yeah. researchers who were fired and the one gentleman who took his own life a few yes. years ago in government. Yes. So what the legislature is trying to do here is learn from that and say, if we are going to do anything about staffing and the way people were mistreated here, allegedly, we got to make sure it's independent, trustworthy, and everyone is behind it. So that's one review. We also heard that Beverly McLaughlin, the former Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada, her review into the spending allegations of the clerk and, and uh, sergeant at arms is well underway. It's due on May the 3rd for MLA. So that is underway. We have a review from the Auditor General into the spending problems here. She spoke to the committee and said she's already found some issues. There's not enough um, controls over certain credit cards. There are conflicting policies on spending. She just flagged a couple things already. She's in the middle of an audit. Um, and then you have the RCMP, Oh yeah, still they're doing their thing, the and special the special prosecutor. Yeah. And then you have the speaker, who still has mentioned that he's been taking affidavits uh, for his <laughs> own workplace review. I'm not sure if that continues or this independent wow, one takes over. How many is that the... five? Yeah, it's anyways. All of this is going to start landing very soon, potentially in May, uh, and this building is going to is going to be rocking and rolling again because that's that's a lot of. Investigatory work coming back pretty quickly. It's amazing,
1: isn't it? I mean, and you bring in Beverly McLaughlin to to do one of the investigations. This the former Chief Justice, of the Supreme Court. Wow! Mm-hmm. Like apparently Antonio Guterres, the Secretary General of the UN, was not available, <laughs> so we got her instead. That's some pretty powerful investigative muscle going on there. So and and well, yeah.
2: well, all of this is going on. The Speaker, Daryl Plekis, is trying to crack down on misbehavior in the House. And let's play a clip of what he really got upset about this week uh, during question period at the legislature. The members on the opposite side, Mr. Speaker, are heckling because they don't want to hear the reality of what went on in the last 16 years. They ignored workers,
3: Mr. Speaker, for 16 years. They showed
2: nothing but contempt towards the working peace movement in the province, Mr. Speaker. Speaker, we value workers, we value their work, Mr. Speaker, that's why we are making changes. Stay tuned, more is
0: coming. Members, that action was completely out of order, and I remind you, Section 47 of the standing orders would allow me to disallow questions. So it's just forewarned on this. We will not be tolerating that action in response to a question.
2: So that's Mm. the speaker saying completely, I mean, if you could hear anything there, all the yelling and screaming and whatnot, that was heckling of the NDP cabinet minister, Harry Baines. So heckling by the liberals. Heckling by the liberals. And then the speaker eventually says, look, like that's completely out of order. Uh, I might start disallowing questions if you keep doing this. Now, I have. Have you ever seen that actually happen in the no, legislature?
1: No, I haven't. And and the liberals were up in arms over that, saying, "What? What? I've never heard of that rule before. What do you mean you're going to disallow questions?" So of course, this is the bad blood between Plekas and the liberals. He's a former Liberal MLA himself. When he took the speaker's job, which effectively allowed the NDP to form government because it removed a Liberal vote out of the out of the building there. Effectively, um, they kicked him out of the party. They absolutely did. They hate the guy, right? Yeah. And suddenly, here you got the liberals heckling the NDP and the speaker stepping in. I mean, the heckling goes on here all the time.
2: Oh, I mean, the NDP MLAs who are answering these questions were themselves the biggest hecklers in opposition. You know, so now they want yeah. to stand up and do it in complete silence. I mean, it's yeah. it's it's fascinating to watch a guy like Shane Simpson stand up and pause until everyone is quiet so they can listen to his answers, most of which, to be honest, are nonsensical speaking points. Um, but he wants to deliver them in silence. But then in opposition, that guy, he would just heckle the bejesus out of whatever liberal was talking. So it's a great position for the New Democrats to be in, this idea that we all have to sit silently and listen to their non-answers um, well. in silence. But at the same time, I guess... The public appetite for listening to MLAs yelling at each other in question period maybe that's not there maybe it's I just kinda, over.
1: I personally like the heckling myself. Um, maybe I'm in the minority there. Pleck had another good line the other day. There was, there was vicious heckling going on, and he said, "I notice in the in the visitor gallery we have a bunch of school children visiting, and he goes to the kids in the gallery, don't do this at home. Do not do not behave like this. But can we can we end up in a quick little story? I'll tell you because yeah. I. I once did a column years ago, and who's the who's the nastiest heckler oh. in the house? So this is back when the uh, the liberals were in power. So I went up to Gary Collins, remember him? Yeah, former finance minister for the liberals. And I said, who's the who's the worst heckler on the NDP bench? And he didn't hesitate. He said Lois Boone, who was a NDP MLA from Prince George. He said, whenever she starts talking, it's like a six-inch spike being driven straight into my forehead. <laughs> and I said, like, wow, what a great quote. And I have, of course, I use this quote in a very florid column the next day on this. And uh, I was sitting in the house the next day and I noticed that Lois Boone called over one of the pages in the house, one of the young people who work in the house, and they said, gave this young page an envelope and said, bring this over to Gary Collins. And I was watching this closely. I go, I wonder what that is. And Collins opened up this envelope and he just started laughing and laughing so I was very curious. So I went up to Collins afterwards and like, said, what was that that Lois Spoon sent over to you? And he opened up the envelope to show me and it was two extra strength Tylenol. <laughs> so,
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, lots of lots of MLA's here have a good sense of humor about it. You, yeah, know? you know, it's part of a lot, it's theater, right? A lot of it. Yeah, but but it does get nasty, too. It'll be interesting to see how that develops here, whether the speaker follows through on those uh threats and weather behavior changes in the house. So we'll keep an eye on that along with everything else. Make sure you follow us both on uh, Twitter. Read Mike Smith's uh, work in the province, my work in the sun, and uh, actually, we forgot to do this, but we'll do it next week. We'll start the mailbag, seg- mailbag. Uh, segment next week. We ran out of time this time, but we're happy to take any questions of yours. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast uh, and check uh, online for the RSS feeds, and we will talk to you next week. Talk to you next week.